Church, what do you think of when you think of God's power? His power. Meaning, if I were to say to you, God is powerful, and so he's a God who blank, what would come into your mind? For most of us, we'd probably hear that, and understandably, we'd think of big or supernatural things that God can do or has done, right? Things like the creation of this whole universe, or Bible stories like the splitting of the Red Sea, or other examples like Jesus miraculously speaking to the wind and waves and silencing the storm. Right? And to be clear, those are God's power revealed. Those show us what God can do. But, concerning our passage that you just heard read this morning, I bring up God's power because, well, there's honestly hundreds of fascinating things in this passage of Scripture here, but one that I think is easily skimmed over, but which is pretty significant, is something that occurs in chapter 53, verse 1 of our passage. Isaiah 53, 1. So as we begin, we'll come back to this later as well, but please look there for now with me. Isaiah 53, 1. And remember, as you heard in the scripture reading, this whole passage is very famous. It's about the suffering servant coming to be humiliated and despised and killed all for the sake of God's people and their forgiveness and rescue. And in the middle of that, notice verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so think of this verse. In basic, in the first line there, it's clear that this whole thing that's going to be happening with this suffering servant is something which is going to be believed or not, right? Believed. But then, in the second line, how is all of this about this suffering servant poetically described there? Well, it's, quote, the arm of the Lord being revealed. The arm of the Lord. And the reason that is so significant, church, is because the arm of the Lord is an Old Testament phrase and picture similar to the hand of the Lord. And it's a way of talking about God's power. His power. It's a phrase which emphasizes that God with his hand or especially with his arm, if you will, he can do whatever he wants. He's God. He's all-powerful. And all that said, why does that then matter here? Well, because think about it. That then means that concerning God's power, his, his majestic hugeness and strength, where he's God and he can do whatever he wants, we need to see here to begin this morning that it is in that very power that God decides to do this. This whole passage. This suffering, this becoming the suffering servant and dying for sinners like us. This is what our God does in his power. And and if you're tracking, that's incredible when you really consider it. And honestly, it's something that is almost really hard for us to believe when we think about God, isn't it? In fact, this reality of this being really hard to believe was true even for those at the time of Jesus' coming. Because again, think about this passage. This is about this lowly suffering servant who would be so humiliated and die an awful death for the sake of God's people. And for the people in Jesus' day, as you might know, this of course was in their Bibles that they read. And yet, you might have heard this before, that when Jesus came, it's clear that concerning their idea of the coming Messiah... They, of course, knew that he would be this strong king, powerful enough to rescue them, especially they thought politically. And yet, they didn't even really consider that the strong king would also be this lowly suffering servant. (laughs) 
It just didn't make sense that the king would do this. And honestly, for you and me in this room, I think sometimes we fall into that same boat, except for us, since we know that Jesus has come and that one of the greatest things he did is be the suffering servant. Since we know all that, we don't struggle with thinking that Jesus, our savior and king, could also be the suffering servant like they did. I think we get that, and yet church, I think for all of us in this room, myself included, when we start to think of God though, right, or who God really is, we still, even after Jesus is coming, we can start to think that really though, God must kind of be this being, since he's so big, he wants little to do with us. Or we start to think that since God is so powerful, he must kind of always be a little disappointed or displeased with us. Or maybe we start to think he probably want to use his, wants to use his power against us. But that's why, again, what we really need to see just to start on this passage, brothers and sisters, is that this amazing suffering and salvation is our God's doing and his power being revealed. Meaning, let's just be so clear, the living God is a God who, yes, is so all-powerful that he can do whatever he wants in such a way where he can create something like this whole universe. And yes, he's holy and he does whatever he desires. And also, though, amazingly, in this passage, he's clear that he's the God who then willingly planned and desired to come and do this. <laughs> this suffering in our place. This is our God. <laughs> And quickly, perhaps out of everything, all the details that you might hear this morning, that's maybe above all what I hope each one of us here leaves with. Because in our passage this morning, it is a stunning picture of Jesus and of what happened in history and, and was prophesied many years ago. And we will get into all of those amazing details. But then also, really, even more generally, one last time, church, this, this what we're about to read, this is God deciding to reveal what he's actually like. And as we're, as we're going to see, he's going to show us that his power is most displayed in incredible sacrificial love. <laughs> love for you and love for me. But all that said, so that then brings us, though, to this whole passage and our outline for how we're going to go through it together. And just so you know, if you're not really familiar with this passage, this here in Isaiah 50, 52, 12 through 53, 12, 13 which is most people would just refer to as Isaiah 53 because that's clunky. This here was written around 700 plus years before Jesus came in Isaiah. And, and almost everyone agrees that this is probably the single best and clearest prophecy about Jesus Christ in the whole Old Testament. And that being said, there is a ton in here, a lot of details, poetry, prophecy. And so honestly, we could easily spend a whole series on this chapter. But since we're in this Understanding the Gospel series, our goal this morning together is to just go verse by verse through this whole gospel chapter in one go together. And so that's basically what we're doing, going through all this verse by verse. And as we'll do so, as for outline, we're going to have three main sections as we do so. Three main sections. First, we're going to be in chapter 52, 13 through chapter 53, 3. And there, we're going to ask these more introductory questions of who is this servant and what's he going to do and what's he going to be like? So we'll do that first. Which then second will lead us to chapter 53, 4 through 9. And there we'll ask, and most centrally, why does this servant come and do what he does? And how does that relate to us? So I'll be second, which in third and finally will lead us to finish with just verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3, 53, where we'll end by asking an even deeper what was really going on with the servant. 
And we'll ask that because in our second section, we'll see most centrally why he came. But then amazingly, to even finish this chapter, God's word goes even deeper for us. So that's where we're going, church. First, who is this servant? What's he going to do? What's it going to be like? Second, most centrally, why? And third, and most deeply, what's really going on here? But all that said, let's just dive in then and begin this first section, church. And here again, we're in Isaiah 53, 52, 13 through 53, 3. And we're asking the questions of who is this servant? What's he going to do? What's he going to be like? And for this, we'll take these verses in two steps, beginning with verses 13 through 15, chapter 52. And as you hear this, this whole passage, remember, this is Old Testament prophecy and poetry, and so it does sound a little different to our ears. But I do think that once we get into it, all of us here will understand it once we get going. And so now, look down at verses 13 through 15 of Isaiah 52. This famous prophecy begins like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So on those verses, first look at verse 13 again. This is how it all starts. So concerning this servant, who is he? Well, behold, he's my or God's servant. And then only great things are said of him in that opening verse. He, he's going to act wisely, which is a good thing. And then with threefold emphasis, you can see it. We're told that he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. All right, so that's verse 13, and it starts on a high note. And all that sounds great, and it's expected, if you will, of God's servant. If we stop there, that would make total sense of the coming king. But then comes verse 14, which are the very next lines. And so look there again, verse 14. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so now people are astonished at this servant, but they're astonished at him. You can see it not because he's high and lifted up and exalted, but instead it's because he's so marred or disfigured. And his human form or his semblance, his personal appearance has become so awful looking. So that's verse 14, and that finally leads here to verse 15 where we see this final twist, if you will, in these opening verses. And that's that, yes, he's going to be high and lifted up. And yes, then he's going to be astonishingly marred. But then also, finally, in all that, apparently, he's going to sprinkle many nations and shut the mouths of kings and do something that no one expected. <laughs> and just so you know, in the Hebrew there, that word sprinkle is a word that has to do with atonement, right? Making people right with the living God. And and so that's just verses 13 through 15. If you're tracking then, who is this servant? What's he going to do? Well, you can see really those three verses alone are already a quick, great snapshot of Jesus, right? He's, he's God's servant acting wisely. He's going to be high and lifted up. He is the Messiah, the Christ. And yet, boom, all of a sudden he's so different than anyone expected. He's going to be astonishingly disfigured and marred. And yet, it is also that which is going to cleanse and forgive and sprinkle not just the Jewish people, but many nations and shock the world. And fast forwarding to you and me, here we are, brothers and sisters, sprinkled and saved by Jesus. <laughs> so that's just the first stanza here of this prophecy and poem. 
which now leads us on to the next one in verses one through three. And this is still our first section because we just generally heard who the servant is and what's he going to do, but now it's interesting here we see more generally of what the servant is going to be like. And so now look at 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So what's this servant going to be like? Well, well, these three verses are pretty important in that they show us what Jesus was prophesied to be like and then because it's true, they actually show us what Jesus was actually like in history. This is pretty interesting because if you think about it, from the gospel books in the New Testament, the gospel writers, the narratives we have about Jesus, we have a lot of the teachings of Jesus. We have a lot of the miracles he did. We have the inner workings with his disciples, right? And we especially have a lot of details of his death and resurrection. But we're actually not really told much of things like what he overall looked like. Or better said, we're not really told that if you, what you and I were to encounter, if say you or I came across him on the street around 28 AD in Judea. But here in Isaiah, we actually have more info. So look, look at these verses. So if we covered the beginning of the message, verse one, we see there's gonna be something to be believed in God's power. The arm of the Lord is gonna be revealed in this servant. And yet, in verse two, here comes the servant. And what's he like? Well, he grows up before God like a root out of dry ground and externally he has no form or majesty that people pay much attention to him nor does he have any external beauty that people especially are drawn to him and desire him and just so you know that verse 2 right there is a verse which proves that yes for you and me in our modern movies and TV shows we now kind of try to make it that Jesus was at least kind of an attractive looking person or people were just naturally captivated by him. But in reality, God's word is clear that he was an average or honestly perhaps even below average looking man from the land of Judea around 2,000 years ago. But not only that, but then finally on the section, even further on what he is like comes verse 3. And so get the flow of this with me. God's arm is coming, the power of the Lord. And yet not only does he have no external beauty or majesty, but now finally in verse 3, and in fact, he was someone who was overall just despised and rejected by people. He was a man of sorrows, which those, that word sorrows can talk about those inward griefs, but also external pains. And finally says he was so despised that people didn't even want to look at him. And quote, we esteemed him not. And so all that said, that's our, that's our first section, church. And then you can sense it. All of that is kind of introducing and, and building up to this whole prophecy. Because in summary, so far, who is this servant? He's God's servant. He's going to be high and lifted up and exalted. But then he's astonishingly marred and disfigured. And what's he going to do? Well, overall, he's going to sprinkle many nations and shock the world. But then finally, what's he going to be like as he does all of that? Well, he's not going to come as some impressively, outwardly looking strong person like we might expect of him. But instead, he'll be an externally average looking person who doesn't seem to be impressive. And in fact, most people look down on him. 
So that's our first section. And now we could take time if we had it and apply all that. Like for example, and how each of us hearing that should realize that it's amazing that the living God decided to do it this way. <laughs> you know, humbling himself that much. Or we could think more and more and we all should think more and more about how Jesus really did become one of us. And how because of what we read, the New Testament says he, we, he sympathizes with us in such a deep way. And so I encourage you to think about those things, apply them to how you think about Jesus. But instead of taking time to do all that, so that we really can go through this whole passage, we'll just now move on. So that's our first section. But that now leads us to our second, where we'll now continue on. And now we're asking, and most centrally, why, according to Isaiah here, did the suffering servant come and do what he does? And for this, we're now going to be in the next two stanzas in verses 4 through 6 and then verses 7 through 9. And so now let's continue on looking at verses 4 through 6 to begin here. And just so you know, if if you're somebody who likes poetry or if you just find this interesting, this whole poetic prophecy here is very intentionally structured by Isaiah and by God through Isaiah. It's a very structured poem. And I say that because if you notice, all of our passage this morning from verse 12 and 50, or verse 13 and 52 through verse 12 and 53, it's five clear stanzas with three verses in each stanza. That's clear. And I bring that up because it is this stanza then that we're about to read, which is right in the middle of it on purpose. And that's why we're asking, and most centrally, why did he do what he did? And so now let's look at these verses in the middle of this big poem. And these are rightly famous. But just remember as you hear this, this was written 700 plus years before Jesus came. Look at God's word, verses 4 through 6, and hear the gospel. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To really get the thrust of those three verses, notice this with me. So the first person, personal pronoun, if you will, meaning we translate it as either we or us or ours in English. Notice how that occurs over and over in these three verses, ten times actually in the original Hebrew. And you can probably see that just scattered throughout. And that alone, I think, really helps us to see what's really going on in these verses. And most centrally, why the suffering servant came and did what he did. Because as for us, notice, the whole underlying thrust of these verses is we know it. You and I, we've got our own griefs, our sorrows, to use the language of verse 4. We've got our own transgressions and iniquities and lack of peace and healing, to use the language of verse 5. And why? Well, above all, verse 6, because we've all gone astray. We've turned every single one of us to our own way. And church, that really, that last line there is sin in a nutshell. Sin according to God's word isn't just or mainly these big external things that we do. Instead, much more frequently and honestly much more devastatingly, sin sin is just you and me turning away from the one who made us and going our own way. (laughs) That's mainly it. God made us. God loved us. Loves us. He designed you and me. He designed us to know him and love him and spread his glorious love and creativity into this world in the best way. But nope, 
Right? We, just, we just go our own way. So that's all of us. But what's so incredible about the center here of this poem is that that's us. In griefs, sorrows, transgressions, going our own way, every one of us. And we'd expect, just in religion, we'd expect the Bible to teach. We have these griefs, sorrows, sins, our transgressions. We're the ones turning away from God. And so the righteous God and fair judge of the universe, he has to lay on us the iniquity of us all. That would be totally fitting and fair. And yet, notice the beauty here. We're going the wrong way. We're doing all of that willfully. Let's get that willfully. That's our lives. And the Lord, in his power, steps in. And at the end of verse 6, he, quote, lays on him. On him, the suffering servant. Not us. On him, the iniquity of us all. Meaning in the first line of verse 4, right? We have our sins and sorrows, but this is something that the Lord is doing here that we can say is sure. That's the first word there, sure, meaning we can look at the servant and say, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, which is why, by the way, this perfect servant of God ever had any sorrows, a man of sorrows, because he was carrying ours. Or we can look at what happened and say, he was wounded for our transgressions. He wasn't wounded for his since he never transgressed and stepped over the line like you and I do, but he took on ours. Or we can say he was even crushed, which is an intense word, crushed, which is referring to real emotional and physical pain, especially the pain on the cross. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Or finally, he was chastised, meaning he was punished. And very specifically here, he was even whipped in history that literally made red stripes on his back. Also that because of what he did, we can have peace. Shalom. Everything's okay. And we can be healed of what is really wrong with us now and forever. And you can just sense the church, that's the gospel. That's, that's Jesus. That's our God in his power coming to accomplish our salvation. It's beautiful and it's centrally what we trust in. That's our faith that Jesus did that for you and me. But that's not even it for this section because now, continuing on, in the next stanza, stanza, the prophecy even gets a little more specific on how in history all of this would happen. So now, continuing on, look at verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So how would all this, with this suffering servant, happen in history? Well, verse 7, he would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. And yet he'd be silent in it all. <laughs> he, he, he'd not open his mouth. And church, that's amazing first because that alone shows us his willingness, if you think about it, to go through all this. He so willingly did this. And I hope you personally know, if you're a Christian here, that Jesus feels that way about you. He willingly did what he did for you. It is such love. But then also second, those lines in that imagery are amazing because remember, in the previous verse, we're the ones who are the sheep who are willfully going away from God. And so if you will, we're the ones who deserve to be slaughtered and sheared. 
But now he becomes a sheep himself, a lamb, and he goes to the slaughter in our place. And just so you know, verse 7 clearly did happen in history, and as you read the Gospels, it is why Jesus Christ is so incredibly quiet and non-defensive at his trial, because he knew exactly what he was doing and what he was fulfilling. But that's not even it for the history of this all. Because then next, in verse 8, we see this idea that he's taken away by oppression and judgment. And people considered him cut off. And, and now we see that's exactly what happened in history as well. As the Jewish people and leaders you know, came along with the Roman leaders and people. And they, they oppressed and judged Jesus wrongly. They had him hanged as a criminal. Crucified as a criminal. And there has never been such oppressive and judgment in the history of the world wrongly done. Which then finally in verse 9, it's even amazing there that the servant would die with the wicked, which he was with other crucified criminals, and he'd even be buried with a rich man in his death, which he was when Joseph of Arimathea decided to come and take Jesus to his own tomb. And Matthew, in Matthew 27, is very clear that Joseph of Arimathea was, quote, a rich man. And so remember, this is the servant. And finally here in verse 9, just let's be clear, that all happened although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, this would all happen and it did. But let's be on the same page. Jesus deserved none of it. So that's these verses in our second section, church. And again, church, section, and, that, and again, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's why this passage is so stunning. Because bringing this to us, and we've talked about this in this series a few times now, but really the biggest question for each one of us and each person in this world is how do we come to grips with and deal with what's wrong with us in the world, right? Meaning, let's be really honest, we all know we have griefs and sorrows and transgressions and iniquities and mess-ups and we go astray. And look, each one of us in here, we know we don't for some superficial or idealistic answer to that sort of question with such common ideas these days like, well, the answer is just do a lot better and fix everything yourself. Or we just act like things aren't really that broken and pretend like you're actually good and everything's fine. We know those things don't work. Those answers don't fix it. Just look in your own life and the brokenness you see in the world and families around you. Things are messed up. And so that sort of answer doesn't solve the biggest issue. We were created good, but now we're bent and off. The world is broken, sinful, sorrowful. And so what is the powerful God's solution if he's got one? Well, every other religion and really other worldview, whether they believe in God or not, they say it's mainly just do better. You know, go and start making up for your wrongs or be religious enough or be successful or be good or believe in yourself or do enough to earn that fearful God's love and maybe forgiveness. The church, as we're seeing from this passage, the true and only God is greater than we could have ever imagined. He sends his son. He comes in history as this unimpressive servant. And literally, he then takes upon himself mess-ups and sorrows and griefs and transgressions and deserves stripes. In history, the powerful creator willingly goes through all of that like a lamb to the slaughter. The creator allows himself to be mocked and slaughtered by sinful, selfish, tiny, created people in our place for our rescue. And we couldn't, we couldn't make this up. So, so that's the second section. And again, 
If we had more time, we could dive into applying all that. But that is the central answer to the why of this. It's the center of the gospel. Because in short, that's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ where Jesus lived and died in the place of his people. And because he did, we do have peace and healing forever. But that all finally for this morning leads us to our third and last section. And now we'll look at this concluding stanza of this prophecy in verses 10 through 12. And for this, again, we're asking and more deeply what was going on with this servant and what he did. And by more deeply, just so you know, I don't mean more importantly, because obviously the center, which you just read, is extremely important. Instead, what I mean is, it's interesting, these final three verses, they give us even more insight into what was and is really going on with Jesus and why it matters. And so now, since we're just going to take three verses in this section, just look at them one at a time. And so now, look down at verse 10. Verse 10. This is actually a really important verse on this all. So continuing on, verse 10. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So two huge things are in that verse. Two huge things. Number one is that shocking first line of verse 10 if you were paying attention. And this is so important because if I were to ask you, who killed Jesus? And what would you say? And the answer is, well, there's a few correct responses to that, right? And we see them in the New Testament. We've already seen them in this prophecy so far. For example, Jesus was taken away by oppression and judgment. And we see that in the history with the crowds and the leaders of Jesus' day as they conspired to kill him. And they did kill him. And then second, we, we also know already that even bigger than that, though, Jesus willingly did this. He wasn't some helpless victim. And so those, of course, are good answers to the question of who killed Jesus. But now, as clear as day, from verse 10 here, in God's word, what we also see is, even above those things, is this. It was, quote, the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will, the desire, that word can never even mean, of the Lord to crush him. In other words, who killed Jesus? Yes, the people back then and the rulers of the Jews and the Romans and they were responsible. And yes, Jesus willingly went, but above all, this is God's doing. God's crushing even. He's the one doing this for a reason. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave his only son. Right? So that's the first big truth here. The Lord crushed Jesus. But furthermore, then number two on the same verse, so, so the Lord crushes his servant. But then second here, see this for yourself. You get this strange and amazing, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's Jesus' death, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And so now we have this strange but clear prophecy of the resurrection. The resurrection. Because the point is, you can see it. The servant will be crushed by the Lord for guilt, and he'll really die. Right? We've seen that over and over in this chapter. But then the servant himself will see his offspring, his children. He will prolong his days and he will do the will of the Lord even after his death, meaning he is going to live on. <laughs> it's incredible. Which next leads us to verse 11. So look there now, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so here you can hear it. Some things are repeated that have already been said. But what's new here is first that whole idea of Jesus' soul being satisfied in all this. Satisfied. And that's, and that's cool to think about because that means that Jesus does love what he did and a lot of that is because he so loves us. <laughs> but then also second, what's new here is that whole idea of the righteous one making many to be accounted righteous. You can see that. And in short, this is probably one of the main places where the New Testament authors get this whole idea of justification or being declared righteous which is one of the most central themes in the whole gospel. And what does it mean? Well, simply stated, you can see it. This servant, Jesus, he is perfectly righteous. He takes our unrighteousness and sins. And because of that, we are then able to be declared righteous by God because of what he did. It's that simple. And the point for you and I to see this morning on that is that clearly, 700 plus years before Jesus came, God's word says that that can happen to us. You and I can be totally okay with God and totally righteous in God's eyes, but it's only because of this suffering servant. He makes many to be accounted righteous. Verses 10 and 11, finally in all this, leads us to the last verse in verse 12. And so look there now, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so, especially the beginning of that verse might sound a little confusing, maybe to most of us in here at first, and that's simply because this poetic prophecy now, towards the end here, is throwing in some imagery of war, actually of war. Because the idea now is that the suffering servant, through what he did, he's victorious. That's what that portion and dividing the spoil talk is picturing. And, and as we know, in the New Testament, Jesus is victorious, right? And the Father rewards him accordingly. And why, though? Well, finally, one last time at the second half of verse 12. And this is really a summary of the whole prophecy and chapter. The servant makes many righteous. He is honored and victorious because he poured out his soul to death. And because he really was numbered and counted as a transgressor on that cross. And yet all the while he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Meaning Jesus Christ alive continues to apply that forgiveness and be so for sinners like us. <laughs> Which quickly I do love and I hope you love that, that very last line of this prophecy. Because that alone really does show us church that once we start, once we embrace Christ in the gospel, we actually don't stop being transgressors. <laughs> At least not in this life. And instead, yes, we do want to follow the Savior more. And yes, we want to love better like he so loved us. We want to be people who sin yet less. Amen, absolutely. But church, the gospel is Jesus did this for us. He came. He lived this seemingly outwardly unimpressive and yet perfect life. He then dies in our place. He rose and he lives on and he right now is so for us and loves us even as we're still the transgressors. <laughs> and again, let's be just so clear. All of that is not because of anything we've done. In fact, now that we've covered all of this, just notice we don't do anything in this whole chapter to earn or deserve or coerce the suffering servant to come and do this for us. Rather, we here deserve the opposite. 
But again, God's good news truly is that the suffering servant, the King God, the Messiah, goes this low in his power to rescue his people. So that's Isaiah 52 and especially 53, church. And as we said at the beginning, now that we have gone through that whole passage, first, I just do hope that you're amazed at how specific that is. Again, written 700 plus years before Jesus came. We even have archaeology that has showed that this was written before the time of Jesus. It is incredible. But even more than that, again, I just hope you appreciate more who the living God actually is. Because each one of us knowing that this is God and this is his power displayed, accomplishing this for you and me, that sort of thinking is what changes our lives. But that is not all for Isaiah this morning. Because finally for this morning, and just stick with me for a few more minutes, just finally, that all does lead us to look at one more place, though, briefly in Isaiah. One more place. And I, and I just want to go here because knowing Isaiah 53, this is actually where this is all moving toward. And it's, or I want to go here because seeing what we're about to see helps us with understanding who our God is. And so for now as we close, just turn with me if you can one or two pages to the right in your Bible to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. I think it'll be worth it. Isaiah 55. So two chapters to the right in your Bible. And we go here because think of it this way. So that's the gospel, Isaiah 53. But now in Isaiah 55, we see a chapter which is more of an invitation to the gospel. And even more than that, in Isaiah 55, we're going to see some commonly quoted verses of the Bible, which I think are often a little misunderstood in their context, but once they are really understood, man, they are incredibly encouraging. encouraging. And you'll see what I mean. So I hope you have turned to Isaiah 55. And first, we're going to read just verse 1. Verse 1. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, Buy wine and milk without money and without price. And we keep going, but I, want to re- I just want to read that because that's a great verse to just show what this invitation to the gospel and God's news actually is. Because notice, God is clear. We don't earn any of this or pay for this. Instead, the gospel is just come <laughs> thirsty and needy and God will provide for us and satisfy us. So that's verse 1 of Isaiah 55, but that finally leads us for our last verses this morning. So now skip ahead a little bit and look at Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. 6 through 9. And this is where I think these verses are sometimes quoted and not fully understood, but they can be really encouraging. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts so on those verses notice verses 8 and 9 you've probably heard those they're often quoted as just verses about how God's thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways and infinitely so and they are But here's the amazing part of those verses and what they really mean. You can see verses 8 and 9 start with that word for or because. Meaning, verses 8 and 9 about God telling us his ways and his thoughts are so much better than ours. Those verses are a reason for something. If that sounds confusing, just stick with me. Because finally for this morning, let's just all get this. So verses 6 and 7 are a call to, well, you can see it, seek the Lord. And then verse 7, to return to God because he will have compassion and abundantly pardon. You see that? That's the gospel. 
That's Isaiah 53. But still, you and I may ask, you might be thinking, but why do we do that? Or better yet, how do we know that the living, all-powerful God will so abundantly pardon us as the ending of verse 7 says? Well, for, because, verses 8 and 9. Meaning, God will totally love us in forgiveness. He'll abundantly pardon us because his ways and his thoughts aren't like ours. <laughs> you see that? Meaning, God's salvation and forgiveness and love are so much better than we could have ever imagined or thought of. And he's proved that and that he's the one who thought of the gospel. That's actually the point of verses 8 and 9. What are the ways and thoughts of God that are so much better and bigger and higher than ours? Answer, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the king who is also the suffering servant. Which means, just to apply that to you and me, it means, church, that the Bible is telling each one of us this morning clearly that you and I can and we should seek the Lord. And we can know that the creator God, whatever you've gone through, whatever your struggles, he will have compassion on you if you turn to him in Jesus. All because in the gospel, God really has revealed something that we couldn't have ever imagined. He has revealed that his thoughts and ways are infinitely better and more gracious than ours. And again, that is the gospel of the suffering servant, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we have the privilege of taking the supper together this morning. Let's pray.